Our scripture reading for this morning will be coming from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 28. This will be in the New American Standard Bible translation. Uh, if you'd like to read along in a like translation, there should be a NASB in the seat in front of you. Now, if you're able, please stand in honor of God's holy word. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every, every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Good morning. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are glorious. Your word is glorious. Father, what a privilege and an honor it is to be able to stand and proclaim your word. Father, I ask that you would give us all ears to hear. Father, that your word would be sweet unto us, that it will be edifying that we will be built up in, in every way. Lord, as I proclaim the truth this morning, I ask for the filling of your spirit. Lord, I ask that I would decrease so that you may increase. Father, may you work in our hearts this morning. May your people be lifted up. And those that don't know you, that they may hear the gospel and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. It's a privilege this morning to be able to stand again and proclaim the word of God. We will get through verses 16 through 28 this morning, which will finish our time in Thessalonians. We read from the NASB, but I will be preaching from the ESV. But we began this series in, in Acts 17. Me and Amos, Keith, and Steve, and it's been a blessing to preach through, through this um, letter with them. But we began in Acts 17, and we learned how this was a church that was born out of severe persecution. But despite their outside circumstances, despite what was going on, we learned throughout this, this letter, through each preaching, that not only they were were they a surviving church, but they were a thriving church. A church who sought to be faithful until the coming of the Lord. That is the theme throughout this book. How are they to live? How are we to live until the day of the Lord? So as Paul reaches the closing of this, this great letter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives them and us eight commands or eight imperatives that we are to abide by as we await the coming of the Lord or the day of the Lord. But Paul knows if they or we attempt to live out these commands in our own strength that we will be crushed. So the question is, how are they, how are we going to live faithful until the end? How are we going to live faithful until the end? And it's Paul's aim in these closing verses to show them and us that though we are called to live in such a way, we are not called to do it alone. We have a God who is faithful, even when we are faithless. Even when we can't do it, we have a God who will surely do it. So as we work through the text this morning, I want you to be encouraged and see how God will bring us from glory to glory. As we look at the text this morning, we're going to break it down 
between verses 16, 16 through 22. And that tells us what we are to do as we wait for the day of the Lord. And verses 23 and 24 tell us what God will surely do. And then we'll finish quickly with the, benedic- with the remainder of that benediction in verses 25 through 28. So again, if you're taking notes, verses 16 through 22 is what we are to do. And verses 23 and 24 is what God will surely do. And then we'll end with the remainder of the benediction. But let's begin looking at chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And in verse 16, Paul gives, or, or throughout this, these three verses, Paul gives a threefold exhortation, which are all connected, and they are to be constant in the life of a believer. Constant in relation to the great shepherd. Now, last week, we talked about the relationships between the sheep and the under shepherds, and then the sheep to the sheep, and this week, our relationship with the great shepherd. And what is that to be? Well, this threefold threefold exhortation is to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. So that is to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks at all times. In this first exhortation, rejoice always. Not sometimes, not most of the time, not when things are going well, but at all times, always. We see a similar exhortation that Paul gives in Philippians 4.4, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And if that's not enough, he says, again, I say rejoice. Philippians 3.1, it says rejoice in who? The Lord. 1 Corinthians 13.6, we are to rejoice in what? The truth. Now, who is truth or what is truth? It is Christ himself. We get to the Old Testament, Psalm 68, 4 and 5. It says to rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. And Isaiah 61, 10, my soul rejoices in my God. If one thing is abundantly clear throughout all the scriptures, it is that we as believers are to have joy And to rejoice. And notice the theme in the verses that were quoted. Who is the source? Who is the foundation of all rejoicing? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But why is it that so many times we lack joy? It's likely because instead of Christ being the source, we find that we are the source of our own joy. Many times, as believers, our joy, again, is found within ourselves, it's found in our obedience, it's found in our circumstances, in our performance, in our relationship with others. But church, we've got it backwards. If our obedience is dependent upon ourselves, we will be miserable. Why? Because we fail. If it's dependent upon others, we will be miserable. Why? Because they will fail us. If it's dependent on outside circumstances, we're going to be miserable because we live in a fallen world. But church, I'm here to tell you this morning that there is one who has never failed. He is the one who sits upon his throne. He is the one without spot or blemish. He is the one with all power and authority. He is the one sent by his father who has accomplished all things. He is the one who accomplished all those things by the power of the spirit. He is the one who took all sin upon himself and nailed it to the cross. If you are saved this morning, your sins have been nailed to the cross. He broke the curse of sin and death. He cried, it is finished, and he proved it by rising three days later. He is the one that has given us his spirit so that sin cannot reign in our mortal body. And he is the one who says, though there was tribulation in the world, I have overcome the world. He intercedes for us. He's preparing a place for us. 
And he is going to bring us from glory to glory and wipe every tear away on that great day. So as you await that eternal weight of glory, look to him. Look to the Lord. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Not ourselves. We don't look to ourselves, but we are to look to Christ. Look to him and all that he's done. And if he is your focus, if he is our meditation, if he is our delight, remember the psalmist, he delighted in the Lord. He delighted in his law day and night. If we, if if the Lord Jesus is our delight, then we can have joy always. And that doesn't mean that the circumstances are are fun. (laughs) It doesn't mean that we rejoice in the circumstances in and of themselves. But in spite, this is what it does mean, in spite of the circumstance, you have joy because of Christ. Now remember, why did Christ have, he said that he did not have joy in the cross, but it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So like Christ, we go through circumstances and we we go through them well rejoicing because of the joy that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth, that future glory. And this joy, this joy will produce holiness. It will produce obedience. It will produce that peace that surpasses all understanding. So saints, get to know him. Dive into his word. Spend time with him, abide in him, and we will rejoice. You might say it's difficult. No, it's not just difficult. Outside of Christ, it is impossible. But what? With with God, all things are possible. Therefore, we are commanded to rejoice. And because he commanded it, it means we can do it. We can rejoice always. His word does not lie, does not turn void. But the Apostle Paul does not stop there. In verse 17, he says, pray without ceasing. But if we are to learn to pray unceasingly, we first need to know what it means to pray. Simply put, prayer is communion with God, is how we converse with him, how we talk with him. He talks to us through his word and we talk back to him in prayer. Prayer is where we make our requests to God, where we intercede on the behalf of others, where we offer praise, where we seek forgiveness. Prayer can be on our knees or it can be standing up. Prayer can be Silent, or it can be loud, and it can be private, or it can be in public. Prayer can be filled with mourning, or it can be filled with joy. It can be spontaneous, or it can be eloquent. Prayer is triune, as we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures describe prayer as seeking the favor of God, pouring out one's soul, crying out to the heavens, and drawing near to God. Now we know that through the scriptures, God desires for us to pray. And he hears our prayers. He hears our prayers. And yes, he answers our prayers even when we do not like the answer. Yes, God answers prayer. Now prayer is not something that we use to go to God like he's some type of genie in a bottle. But we go to him. So that we can know him, so that we can abide with him, so that we can grow in our relationship with him. Now, like I said, it doesn't mean that we go to him like a genie in a bottle, but it does say we have not because what we ask not. So let's ask our father. Now, let's be careful because you might be saying I'm asking, but I'm not receiving. Well, are you praying within his will? So we have to be careful not to be praying outside of his will, but he does hear our prayers. He answers our prayers and we are to pray to him about everything, everything. If you need to overcome a besetting sin, go to God. If you need wisdom, 
Listen to James. Go to God. If you need peace, if you need joy, if you need understanding, go to God. Psalm 34, 4. It says, I sought the Lord. And what? It says he answered me. Again, God answers prayer. Sometimes I think we don't pray enough because we don't believe what God says in his word. It says that he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. If you are in need of provision, go to God. He will supply all your needs according to what? His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Go to your father who is in heaven. He listens. Be encouraged. And look, if we don't know how to pray, we have many examples in the scriptures to help us to pray. I'm just going to go over three this morning, or three examples, and those are the Psalms, the Apostle Paul, and of course, the Lord Jesus himself. I can't spend as much time as I would like this morning, but the Psalms are a great place, whether you're just starting to, to pray or learning how to pray, or if your prayer life is, for lack of a better term, thriving. The Psalms contain, they contain praises, laments, petitions, supplications, and more. Anywhere you are in life, the Psalms is dealing with those things. It is my encouragement that you will make the Psalms just reading and praying through them some type of regular part of your prayer life is, I think, is very helpful. And secondly, the Apostle Paul provides an excellent blueprint for how we are to pray, especially when he, at the beginning of his letters, how he's praying for the saints, how he's praying for that they will be filled with the knowledge of God and conformity to Christ. Maybe you're praying through the bulletin. Well, how do I pray for this brother or sister? Well, let me go to, to Philippians 1 or one of the other letters and pray as Paul prayed. And notice, not that we don't pray for physical things for others, we should. But notice how Paul's main, the main thrust of his prayers are that, that are spiritual. So yes, we should pray for, for healing and and all those and all those things, but pray also, hey, Lord, would you sanctify them through this time that they are going through? Lord, this person is sick, but Father, use this to bring them unto yourself so that they may be saved. So Paul is a great teacher to help teach us how to pray. And then, of course, the Lord of glory himself who provided for us the model for prayer in the Gospels. And as we, but many refer to this as the Lord's Prayer, but as we heard from this pulpit on multiple occasions, it's more it's more true to call it to the, the disciples' prayer as they're the ones who ask the Lord to teach them how to pray. If you want to read the Lord's Prayer, go to John 17. But looking at Matthew 6, beginning in the seventh verse, if you would like to turn there, Jesus says, when you pray. So we see right there, we're expected to pray. It's not, it doesn't say if you pray. It says when you pray. When you pray, do not heap up empty, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. You're not gonna, God is not going to hear you more because of some ritualistic formula or, or some mantra. In fact, the publican, he prayed, he said, Lord, have mercy on me. A sinner. His prayer was much shorter than the than the um, than the prayer of the Pharisee, but it was a lot more powerful. He thought he would be heard for his many words, for his boasting, or 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 here it's talking about the Gentiles, just some rep, some vain repetition. But how does Jesus tell us how to pray? It says, he says instead, pray like this, and he gives us the model to follow. In verses 9 through 13, 
And notice that I said model doesn't mean that we have to pray this verse, this prayer verbatim. Now, we can, but it's a model to help us pray, to teach us how to pray. And it covers everything. He begins, he says, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be or holy is your name. So he gives that reverence and that thanksgiving first to God. And then he asks for for his will, not our will, but for his will to be done, for his kingdom to be realized on this earth. Then he moves on. He prays for our daily provision. To give us bread. And he prays for both daily and I mean, physical and spiritual provision. Not only for our physical needs, but also our spiritual that we will forgive and that we would be and that we forgive others and then to be forgiven. And then he finishes in this text. For strength against temptation. And evil or the evil one himself, which is Satan. So I kind of paraphrased the prayer a little bit, just went through it quickly. But it covers everything. And we not only think when we think of the Lord's prayer or how Jesus prayed, we don't think of just this model that he gave us, but his example in his prayer life of himself, how he would slip away to his father so he could be alone in prayer. Luke 5, 16. But he would withdraw himself to desolate places and pray. Prayer was so essential to Jesus that many times after ministering all day, he would wake up early in the morning so he could get before his father. Now, if the Lord needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? And yes, he he was God, but you don't get to use that excuse because he was also fully man. And he did everything as a man in the power of the spirit. But now that we've looked extensively, not exhaustively, at what prayer is, how do we follow this command to pray without ceasing? Well, it doesn't mean that we are expected to pray nonstop 24 hours a day. That, that is an impossibility. But what it does mean is that we are to be in a posture of prayer that we pray about everything, that we are faithful and persevering in prayer, that, that we are constant in constant communication or commu- not communication, but constant communion with the Lord and in an, in an uninterrupted spirit of prayer. It's a mindset. It's a it's a way of life or a lifestyle. Now, what we have to realize here, and sometimes I don't think we don't. I'm talking to myself. We can't do anything apart from God. Nothing. Now, again, the Lord Jesus, he knew this as he prayed in every circumstance. Before picking his disciples, what did he do? He prayed. Before turning water into wine, he prayed. He prayed at the tomb of Lazarus. He prayed at Gethsemane before the crucifixion. Before, at his baptism, his transfiguration, he prayed. He is a perfect example of praying without ceasing. Now listen, how many decisions do we make, even big ones, do we make in the arm of the flesh? Without praying, without consulting the Lord. Are we more powerful? Are we more mighty than our master himself? Now, of course, we know the answer is no, but sometimes by our actions, we act like we are. We go throughout. We don't pray. We make so many decisions. We do so many things in our daily life, and we did not consult the Lord. Let's think about that. And before we move on, I think the Lord was able to pray unceasingly. Because as we mentioned earlier, he prayed alone with his father. 
Now, now sometimes I will hear people say, oh, I don't spend much time in, 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 a, in a prayer closet. I don't have a prayer closet. I don't have a long time with, with God. I just kind of pray throughout the day. If you don't set aside some time with, where it's just you and the Lord uninterrupted, I doubt you're praying much throughout the day. I think it is important. I'm not trying to be legalistic or, or it has to be this specific time or that specific time or in this certain place, but we need that alone time with the Lord. And as, as we, the more we pray, the more we'll be able to pray without ceasing. Our communion with God, I think it will almost, I don't want to say second nature, but in a way it may become a, a, like, almost like second nature where we're just in communion with the Lord because we're spending time with him. But just a few encouragements. If you're struggling with prayer, I think uh, help, something that has helped me in the past is while I'm reading the scriptures is to pray through it at the same time. That is helpful. Second, if you're struggling, it, it wouldn't be wise to go and try to spend five or six hours in prayer the next day. But you start off small. And then, and then the more you pray, then it, can, then it will increase. But build your way up. And then lastly, I, I got this. And there's, there's more that could probably said on this. But I got this from Paul Washer. But he would find little bits of the day just to, just to slip away. It might be a break at work or, or three minutes here or a minute there. And he would just spend some time with the Lord. But wherever you are in your prayer life or wherever we are in our journey, we are commanded to pray without ceasing. Again, it is a command just as it is to rejoice. But again, if you're struggling with prayer, don't leave out of here beat up or, or feel discouraged. Just pray. <laughs> um, and, and hopefully some of these encouragements will help you. And remember, the Spirit does pray for us as well. Let's not forget that. When we don't know what to pray, the Spirit is praying for us. Also, if you need prayer, I guess one last thing before I move on. Find another believer and ask them to teach you how to pray. But all these, these three exhortations are connected because the more joy we have, the more we will pray and vice versa. And the more we pray and rejoice, the more we will give thanks in all circumstances as we are commanded to in verse 18. It says, give thanks in all circumstances, no matter what you're going through, no matter the pain, no matter the struggle, you can give thanks. And why? Why can you give thanks? Because your reliance is not on yourself, but on the God who raises the dead. Church, we have much. You have much to be thankful for. We should be the most thankful of people. You were dead in your trespasses and sin without Hope in the world. You were in rebellion against God and under his wrath, bound to your sin and your father, the devil. If you were not in Christ or before you were in Christ, the devil was and is, if you're still outside of Christ, your father. But God, one of the greatest phrases in all of Scripture, but God. Instead of giving you what you deserve, which is an eternity in hell, separated from his love forever. What did he do? He swooped down and he rescued you. Not because you wanted to be rescued. You did not want to be rescued. You were running the opposite way. But what did he do? He went after you. He sought you. He rescued you. He justified you. He adopted you. And if that were not enough, he didn't treat you as some, as just, um, some forgotten child, he adopted you, and then he treated others better than you. No, he did not only do that, as he adopted you, he made you joint heirs with his own son on equal footing in some unimaginable, uncomprehensible way. You are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But not only that, it doesn't stop there. That was enough. That was too much, if you will, because we don't deserve any of that. But he doesn't stop. It says we learn that, that he loved us even before the foundation 
of the world and has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But not only did he choose you, not only did he save you, but he is persevering you until the end. He won't lose you. Paul said that I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is faithful. Again, he will not lose one of his. He never has and he never will. Why do you think Paul could be thankful in shipwrecks and beatings and being chased by false brothers and, and others out of cities? He could be thankful while he was tired, while he was thirsty, while he was on the brink of death. Why? Because he knew where his hope lied. He knew where he was going. Church, we have so much to be thankful for. Let's know. Let's be like Paul. Let's know where our hope lies. Let's know where we are going. So when we're ready to complain, when we feel hopeless, remember who our Lord is and all that he has done in spite of us, in spite of our sin. We deserve the very worst, but instead, praise be to God, we have received the very best. If you are not in Christ and you have everything in this world, truly you have nothing. But if you were to have nothing in this world and you have Christ, you have everything. You have everything. And that is why in verse 18 it says that we are to be thankful in all circumstances. But why are we to be thankful in all circumstances? Why are we to pray without ceasing? Why are we to rejoice always? It says, ending this verse, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is his will for those of us who are in Christ. It is his desire that we will pray, that we will be thankful, that we would rejoice Listen, everyone wants to know what the will of God is for their life. They want to know the hidden things of God. Who am I going to marry? What job will I take? Where should I move? For many of us here, who is the next pastor? But I'm here to tell you this morning that the secret things belong to God. But if you want to know his will, I've discovered it, and so have you, and it's found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, and it's to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks in all circumstances. So stop searching for the will of God when you already have it. Leave the secret things to God and obey his revealed will, and everything else will fall into place. In fact, it already has fall, fallen into place. It's done. It's finished. We're just living this thing out. We have what so many are searching for and will never find. But now that Paul has given three positive commands, what believers are to do in verses 16 through 18, he begins verse 19 with a, with a negative command, what we are not supposed to do as we await the coming of the Lord. Now, as we begin to look at verse 19, some, some scholars connect verses 19 through 20. And there's some disagreement there, but that's fine. But the, the way I understand this text is that this command in verse 19 is, is alone, it's, it's a standalone command, if you will. But what does it say? Verse 19. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. And before we attempt to figure out what it means to not quench the Spirit, I think it's helpful for us to think through who the Holy Spirit is. So many misconceptions of the Holy Spirit and his work. 
One of them is that people think that the Holy Spirit is some, just some type of force or power. Now, he does have power. <laughs> but he is a person. He is a person. We learned that the Holy Spirit can be sinned against. In Isaiah 63.10, in Acts 5.3, we see that he can be lied to. In Acts 10.19, we find the Spirit speaking to Peter. Now, if he was just some type of impersonal force, he would not be speaking, or he could not be sinned against. Second, and more importantly, I believe the Holy Spirit is the eternal God. He is the third person of the Trinity. I could go to many texts this morning to prove that the Holy Spirit is God, but I think one will be sufficient this morning. And we'll return to Acts 5 and verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie. Now, if, if you remember that many in the, in the church in Acts were compelled out of, love, out of love for others through the work of the Spirit to give much of what they had away, to share with each other. Now, it was theirs. It was theirs, but they were given out of their abundance or maybe even out of their need. But that's, that's some of the context here. But he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Now, let's pay attention. Who is he lying to? He says, fills your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now, here, here's the key. Remember, he lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it say at the end of verse 5? It says, you have not lied to man, but to God. So that means that the Holy Spirit is God. Next, let's look at his work. What is the work of the Spirit? What does he do? Well, his purpose is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness. To, op to open the eyes and hearts of unbelievers, regenerating them so that they may believe the gospel. And it is to dwell in the believer and sanctify the believer as he leads him or her into all truth. And now mainly, the Holy Spirit is not pointing to himself. He's pointing to, to Christ and pointing us back to the Father. He leads and he guides us. So now that we've looked at some of who the Spirit is, what does it mean to quench him? The word quench, it means to stifle, to extinguish, or to put out or suppress. Now, let's be clear, this, is not, this does not mean that the Spirit can be extinguished to some point of being taken away from the believer. That would contradict Ephesians 4.30 says which you were sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You're sealed. If you have the Spirit, you're not going to lose it. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. So how do we or can we quench the Holy Spirit? Well, Alistair Begg, he gives three ways that the Spirit can be quenched or the fire and it's fire within the believer. Number one, he says that we starve the fire of the spirit by not adding fuel to it. Not exercising the gifts of the spirit that have been given to us. Number two, he says we pour water on the fire by having a self-centered spirit. We're to be filled with the spirit, not have a self-centered spirit. And third, he says that we cover up the fire with dirt by not taking heed to the Spirit's warning not to sin. And we walk not in step with the Spirit, but in the deeds of the flesh. 
Alistair Begg continues, he says, when we dampen the fire of the spirit through this interest and or rebellion, we dampen the fire of the spirit in our lives and its gracious manifestations. The spirit's presence is withdrawn and the evidences of that presence. Now, while the spirit will never leave the believer, we will be deprived of a sense of God's love. We'll be deprived of a sense of that joy of salvation that we have. A lack of peace. A lack of assurance. We will miss out on the the comforts of, of intimacy. If you lack intimacy with the spirit, it's likely because you are in sin. Or you are neglecting the gifts that he has given you or you are lacking and involving yourselves in the means of grace. Whether that's the preaching of the word, I mean, or the reading of the word, or listening to the preaching of the word as you fellowship with the saints, or prayer, or the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But heed this warning. If you live in a consistent pattern of the working of the Spirit not being evident in your life, if you're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, if you're not controlled by the Spirit, Romans 8 and 9, in a consistent pattern of your life, or you fail to treat your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, that is, not, that is defiling it through some type of sexual immorality, on a consistent basis, if that is you, then examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. It is very possible that you are not quenching the spirit because you do not have the spirit to even quench. Now that is hard. That can sound hard. But examine yourself. If that is you, if that is a consistent pattern of your life. But continuing in verse 20. He says he gives another command. It says, do not despise prophecies. Now, New Testament prophecy, it it dealt more with foretelling rather than rather than foretelling the future. So I agree with John Calvin and others that prophecy here is speaking more of of preaching of or proclaiming God's revelation. Strong's concordance defines prophecy in this sense as the in this sense as the gift of communicating and enforcing God's revealed truth now God will reveal truth to the prophet or preacher and they will proclaim thus saith the lord now it is my conviction that the, that the scriptures teach that the official office of the prophet and I I don't have time to try to delve into all that this morning but that the official office of the prophet has ceased as well as this type of prophecy. Now, there is disagreement there, but that is, I believe the scriptures teach that. Now, remember, I want us to remember, remember at this point, the New Testament had not been written or it's not been finished. It's in the process. So it was necessary for God to speak through people prophetically in order to communicate revealed truth. Now, sometime during or after the era of the the apostles is my conviction that this gift has ceased and that God is not. Well, I know this part to be true for certain, that God is not revealing new revelation. Nothing else needs to be added to his word. He speaks through his word. Now, if, there, if you have some type of disagreement with the continuation of some of these what we call sign gifts, then I'll be more than happy to, to talk with you about that or discuss those things. But he says, despise not prophecies. Now, this could also would have also been connected or been a form of quenching the spirit. But he says, don't despise them. Don't treat them with contempt. As application to us, don't despise God's 
God's instruction through the proclamation of the word to you. You might hear something that is hard. You might hear something that hurts the flesh. Like, mm, I don't want to do that. I don't know if I can do that, Lord. But don't despise it. Instead, do what? It says, and it says in the next verse, verse 21, but test everything. Test everything. Be a Berean. Be a Berean. Search the scriptures to see if what I say or anybody else in this pulpit or anybody or anyone proclaiming the word of God, test to see if what they say is true, if it lines up with the word of God. Even when Paul preached, what did the Bereans do? They searched the Old Testament scriptures to see if what he said was true. They lined it up with God's written word. So when anyone comes to you and with thus saith the Lord, whether it be they're reading the scripture and they, and they say this is what the Lord says, make sure they're not taking it out of context. Make sure it's truth. Whether it's that or somebody comes to you and says, and says, well, God told me or, or God said to me, you better test it immediately. See if it lines up with the word of God. The scriptures, the written word of God, as Hebrews 4 says, is living and active. I hear some people blasphemous, blasphemously say sometimes, oh, this is, this is the dead word that... that Almost, it almost makes me cringe to even say something like that. No, his word, Hebrews 4 and 12, is active. It's living and active and like a two-edged sword. 2 Timothy 3.16 says it equips us for every, not some, but every good work. It is our final authority. The Bible, what God has said in his word. So if someone says something and it does not line up with his word immediately, we reject it. So many people are carried away with every win and doctrine. But why? Because they neglect to search the scriptures to see if what is said is true. And sometimes it's because they're just neglecting to search the scriptures at all. I think I was, I was telling, mentioning to some of the brothers yesterday at our, our morning study that one of the sad things is that in the professing church, there's so little discernment. And sometimes, I say this to um, our shame. Now, I say professing church because just because somebody professes Christ doesn't mean they are in Christ. But a lot of times I see that even unbelievers will have seemingly more discernment than those who profess the Lord. But there is a, a lack of biblical literacy across the professing church. We, are, we need to open up our Bibles. We need to be Bereans. We need to know the truth between truth and error, or some say between truth and almost truth. False teaching is, is so deceptive, but that's why 1 John 4, 4 says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see, or the spirits to see if it is true. Now, I love that this is a church that does search the scriptures, that knows their Bibles. I just can't get up here and say anything. I, will get, I know I'll get checked immediately. That is a, a great thing of, about, about this church, that we take doctrine seriously, that we take the word of God seriously. But continuing... Paul next says, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. We are to cling to, to hold fast to, to not let go all that is righteous and good. So let's hold fast, church. Let's hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, to the good news of the gospel, that good deposit, to sound doctrine and to sound living that accords with sound doctrine. If you remember when I preached through Titus 2 some time ago, we talked about how sound doctrine is the source of godly living. They go together. We are to believe what is right, and then we are to faithfully apply it to our lives. The gospel does something. 
It's, it's just not some, some formula, some, some facts that we believe. No, we believe it and it changes us. So my challenge this morning is for us to examine our life and doctrine and then find those things that are not good and begin to weed them out. May we read Philippians 4, 8 and let that marinate a bit this week for us. And that, what does that say? It says, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. There's any excellence, anything worthy of praise. What? Think on those things. But again, hold fast to what is good. Or, or specifically, more specifically, hold fast to the one who is good. Goodness himself, and that is Christ. And if you are holding fast to what is good, or holding fast to what is good is the key to abstaining from every form of evil that, as we see in verse 22, it says, abstain from every form of evil. Now, Paul says elsewhere, it says to avoid even the appearance of evil. If it even looks like sin, then avoid it. says it's shameful to even speak of those things that are done by them in secret. Then Ephesians 5.3 says, Do not let fornication and all uncleanness, uncleanness or covetousness to not be named among you as becometh saints. Brothers and sisters, don't give your flesh an inch. Because if you do, Next thing you know, instead of abstaining from every form of evil, you will be engaging in every kind of evil. Sin is dangerous. So I exhort you this morning to put the death, the deeds of the body. And how do we do that? Again, it's by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. But in order to put off, we put on what is good. That's Colossians 3. Psalm 119, 11, it says, your word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So the key to abstaining from every form of evil is to hold fast to what is good. And then we get to verse 23 and 24. And at this point, you might be saying, I, I know I'm supposed to to do these things. I know I'm supposed to be constant and rejoicing. I know I'm supposed to pray without ceasing. I, I, I know, brother, that, that I'm supposed to give thanks in all circumstances. It is, it is my desire to not quench the spirit and therefore lack intimacy with the Lord. I, I, I want to take in all of God's truth with joy. It's my passion to love what God loves and, and hate what he hates. But, brother, some, sometimes I fail. In fact, a lot of times I fail. I come short far too often. Well, if that's you, welcome to the club. And then lift up your spirits. Because the life that you live in and for Christ is not based on you, but on the one who was faithful. He will finish what he started. His work in you will be completed. And once he's done, you will be a masterpiece. It's like, a, it's like an artist in it, and he's chiseling away at you. And when he's done, you're going to be a magnificent sculpture. So he begins the, the closing in this letter in verse 23, and he says, Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely or entirely. May he sanctify you from head to toe. That's what Paul is praying here. May your whole, and then he says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body. This is another way of saying, may all of you or, or, or may all of you or both your inner and outer being be kept blameless. At the coming of the Lord, may it be kept holy, may it be kept pure for that great day. Then verse 24, Paul sells the Thessalonians. And by way of application, he tells us here at Green Run, 
Your sanctification is not left up to chance. Your glorification at the coming of the Lord is not dependent upon you. Well, who is it dependent upon? It's dependent upon the one who has called you. The one who called you out of darkness and to his light. Who called you before the foundation of the world. The one who has kept every promise. The one who has never lied, nor can he lie. He's the long-suffering one. He's the righteous one. He's the just one. Verse 24 says, he, this God. This God is faithful. He will surely do it. That is what the ESV says. He will surely do it. Has there ever been more wonderful words written or uttered? If you have been justified, if you have been justified, your sanctification and your glorification are guaranteed. It's finished. It's set in stone. And you have the stamp of, the, of approval from the Father himself. It is written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing can separate you from his love. He is faithful until the end. Again, it is finished. The Lord has done it. He's done it. Now let this glorious truth spur us on. If this is my God, I will be Constant and rejoicing. If this is my God, I will pray without ceasing. If this is my God, I will give thanks in all circumstances. If this is my God, I will hold fast to what is good and abstain from more, from every form of evil. And since this is my God, he will surely do it. He will bring it to the end. The work that he started, he will complete it, church. And on that great day, we're going to see him face to face. Do we get it? Do we understand this? Let it marinate. Let it, let it build up in your hearts and minds and understand what the Lord has done, what he has completed. Then let's live it out. It's faithful. If you're here this morning and you do not know God, then repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today is the day of salvation. You have rebelled against him. He says, go right. You go left. He, he says, obey. You say, you say no. Well, he sent his son. And he lived perfectly. And he obeyed every single command so that you would not have to. And then he went and he died on the cross for those who will believe in him. So I'm, call, I'm telling you this morning, if you want this joy... If you want this assurance, if you want to escape the wrath of God, there's only one way, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on his name and you will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This very moment, you can repent and believe the gospel. He won't turn you away. He will do it. And for us that are in Christ, we have the assurance that he will surely do it. But to close this letter, I want to say that it's been a great honor to be a part of preaching through this letter, again with Amos and, and Keith and Steve. My brother Steve hadn't even preached the sermon before we start going through this series, and what a blessing the word has been as it's come from him. So thankful and honored to be able to go through this. Also be able to go through this as a tribute and remembrance to Pastor Dave, who had planned to preach through this letter. I pray that we have done him justice. But again, it's been a joy. But Paul ends his final greeting to this young church, this model church, this church in Thessalonica who was born out of persecution, this church who would continue to be faithful until the coming of the Lord. Again, may we too be faithful until his coming, knowing with full confidence that he will surely do it. Let us read. I'm going to close by just reading the benediction or finishing the benediction of verses 25 through 28. 
Paul ends this letter. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It never turns void. It always accomplishes what it says it will do. Because you will accomplish what you have said you will do. And it is your word written to us, given to us for our edification, for our sanctification, and eventually our glorification. Father, I thank you that we have been able to go through this letter together as a, as a body. I ask that we will be lifted up in every way, that we will be encouraged and edified. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.